thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. are in our 15th study of the book of Leviticus. And for those of you who joined us tonight, uh, perhaps for the first time, by way of recapitulation, the book of Leviticus, if you were to sit down and try to read it through and through, will come across as a difficult book to read. It isn't straightforward, it isn't simple, or isn't easy. That is for sure. However, there is a a clear um, structure to the book. It begins with the Lord teaching Moses about the sacrifices that Israelites can offer. Therefore, it comes right after the construction of the tabernacle that is described in the book of Exodus. So if you notice, God's attention isn't drawn to what they will eat, how will they live, how will the camp be organized, or any of those sorts of things, it is immediately drawn to the liturgy. How will you worship? It begins with that. From there, we, are, we, we come to understand that the sacrifices that the Israelites can offer are only for sins that they have committed, either out of ignorance or out of um, a misunderstanding, they cannot, those sacrifices could not be used in a situation where an Israelite committed a sin willfully. There is no forgiveness of willful, sinful acts in the book of Leviticus. This is important for us to repeat because. It would be very easy for Catholics who are used to confession to project that back into the book and to think that when we hear forgiveness of sins, it is meant in a Catholic sense, but it isn't. Likewise, for those of you who do attend Eastern liturgies, Maronite or Chaldean, there is a there is a theme that repeats where we ask the Lord to forgive our sins. May this communion be for the forgiveness of our sins, says the Maronite liturgy. And so there is a tendency or a temptation amongst those who attend to think somehow that that prayer replaces or substitutes for confession. But it doesn't. This is a prayer 
in the same spirit of Leviticus for the venial sins that we may have committed during that week. But, they, but Holy Communion does not forgive mortal sins. Right? Furthermore, another really important aspect to that prayer is that it is communal. It isn't just about my personal sins, but it is also about the sins of the community, which is also another important aspect that we have to keep in mind. Nevertheless, even though the book of Leviticus does not contain grace to forgive sins, it is operating along the same pedagogy that the Lord used with Adam and Eve. And the same pedagogy that is the same way that He uses with us. God, in most cases, is not going to spoon-feed us. God is not going to come to us and say, here's what I want you to do. A, B, C, D, E, and F. And all that you need to do is check. Because that would then give us a way out from the real hard work that we must do, which is to love. It is far easier for me to complete a checklist than it is for me to love. Therefore, as with Leviticus, as with Genesis, God puts in front of us a way of life and He awaits our response. So, for instance, we have a couple. That's actually a case that I dealt with personally. There's a couple. This is a couple who is genuinely interested in their faith. But they've been using contraception out of fear. They're afraid to bring a kid into the world because then the wife will have to stop to work and take care of it. They can't think about making that switch where the woman becomes a stay-at-home mom, full-fledged mom, taking care of the house. Well, think about it. In our current situation, this is a hard problem for a lot of us. That's not easy to do. Therefore, many of us do not even ask the question. The difficulties before us, what do we do? We take it upon ourselves to find the solution. God is no longer in the picture. We assume, we assume right away that the only possible answer is for both the mother and the father to work. Now, I am not saying... That in all cases, and under all circumstances, the wife will not work. That's what I'm saying. What I want you to key on here in this specific instance is the fact that this couple had made a determination that did not engage the Lord. When we're faced with difficulties and challenges, the right thing to do is first to go and offer sacrifice. That's really the foundation and the message of the book of Leviticus. We could be drawn to all the negatives, all the negation. Don't do this and don't do that. And you should, we can do that, but we miss the positive, which is, I am talking to you. 
I, the Lord, am present in your midst. I am here. The God of the universe is amongst you. Yes, you can be completely focused on the law I'm giving you for the sake of the law, or you can understand it as a way for me to speak with you. But if you would come to talk to me, I am so much bigger than the law. You see? As it was with the book of Leviticus, so it is with us. Same principle. We're going to see this in today's study. Then, moving forward, the Lord institutes the law of the priesthood. He explains what He expects His priests to do. And then after that, as we saw, He moved on into defining what the family is, the duties of the family, and the behavior of the laity. So you can see it, it's all-encompassing. It covers all aspects of life. And for us, we need to ask this question every single day. Is the Lord encompassing all aspects of my life? Or are there decisions that I'm making where I assume naturally that God is not interested? Or God is not going to look at this particular detail as something important to me. You see, because we tend to judge everything by their outcome. So, for instance, if I get up in the morning and I decide not to brush my hair or to brush my hair, that may be a problem some of us have more so than others, especially if our wives have something to say about it. I could look at this in terms of the outcome, which is the state of my hair or the state that my hair will be in. And therefore... That being such a small, little, insignificant detail in the grand scheme of things, right? People dying in Syria and then hunger and all of that, right? I might simply decide, eh, I'm not going to brush my hair today. I'm going to brush my hair. What, what does it matter to God, right? It might look like it doesn't matter at all. Why? Because I'm being driven by the outcome. But God doesn't work this way. God is less interested about the outcome. I didn't say He's not. He's less interested about the outcome than He's interested about my state of being. It's not what I have. It's what I am that interests Him. And so you might say, and what does it matter what you are with the business of hair? Okay, you're not bald. Big deal. No, 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 no. We're missing a point. Let's, let's assume that this morning my wife wants me to do something with my hair. And I really don't feel like doing it. If I do it when I don't feel like doing it, what did I just do? I just offered a sacrifice. Yeah? What else did I do? I imitated Christ in a very small matter. He was led to the cross and he did not open his mouth if I were to allow my wife to arrange my hair the way she wants to and not open my mouth what did I just do? yeah I just told him I'm thinking about you I can't do what you did I'm just thinking about you right? do you see how important this? do you think God is interested in that? 
Oh, you bet, you, you bet he is. Do you think he prepared that moment before the world was created? He thought about that moment for me? Yes. Why? Because this was a gift. That was a gift from him to me. And if I did not pay any attention, not only did I ignore the gift, I ignored the giver of the gift. Do you see how suddenly that little insignificant moment have become actually very important? Okay. Likewise with the entire book of Leviticus. We could be focused on, oh, you can't offer this kind of animal, you can offer that kind of animal, and all these restrictions, right? But if you miss what's behind all of that, the care and love of a father for his children, then we're not in conversation with God. And the book of Leviticus comes to life when we enter into that conversation. And so tonight, as we nearing close to the end of our study of the book of Leviticus, we're going to consider another very important aspect of the life of Israel, which is called the Holiness Code. And we are going to focus on Leviticus 23. I'll try and touch on Leviticus 16 as well, but it's going to be mostly Leviticus 23. Now let me read Leviticus 23 for you, and you might then wonder why is the Lord again so interested in all of these things that I'm going to list before you, and we'll go through it and see why. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy congregations, my appointed feasts are these. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, you shall do no work, it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the important feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, in the evening, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, that you may find acceptance. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the cereal offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil to be offered by fire to the Lord, a pleasing order, and a drink offering with it shall be a wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this, this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And you shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the, the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven full weeks shall, there, shall they be, counting fifty days to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a cereal offering of the new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one young bull, and two rams, 
they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their cereal offering and their drink offerings and offering by fire, a pleasing order to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is a statute forever in your dwellings throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field to its very border, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, and you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, On the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, it shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present an offering by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on this same day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does not does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. In all your dwellings it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of, the, of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. Seven days... You shall present offerings by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord offerings by fire, burn offerings and cereal offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the, the produce of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord seven days in the year it is a statute forever forever throughout your generations you shall keep it in the seventh month you shall dwell in booths for seven days all that are native in Israel shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. All right. Not an easy read. It's one of the longer chapter in Scripture. Not the longest, but one of the longer chapter. First, the first idea of the entire chapter is what? God is interested in time. God establishes a calendar. 
There is a calendar of feasts. What do we call that in the Catholic Church today? The, the, we call it the liturgical seasons or the liturgical year, right? Liturgical year. And for some of us, somehow, liturgical year is or could be disassociated from God. It's the church thing. It's not God's thing. And we can be no farther from the truth when we think this way. Particularly because currently in the Latin rite, there is this unfortunate construct called ordinary time. The key here is, God established occasions for festivals. He established the times assigned for them and the liturgies to be followed. Right? The liturgies to be followed. The word used for appointed time, I don't like that translation. This is the... uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, but I don't like it because it has the word appointed, which makes us think of an appointment. The Hebrew word, and for those of you who understand Arabic, you'll catch the, the connotation involved, is mawad. Now, that word is not, does not have, it could mean that you're going for an appointment to a doctor. Yes, definitely. But it can also mean a date. Right? It has a much more uh, emotional context to it. It has a notion that you're going to be meeting somebody you want to meet. Whereas appointed time sounds almost like a, I don't know, military operation. You see what I'm saying? You lose that... I mean, how many of you will call your wife and say, it is the appointed time for us to meet? I mean, maybe you're going to court or something, right? That doesn't carry the right connotation in my mind. So the, the, think more, more. When he says appointed, it's like a date. You have a date with me. Because otherwise, the whole festive aspect is gone. It's the appointed time. Be there or else. Do you get, do you get my... you see what I'm trying to say? Okay. God establishes the calendar. God is interested in time, and He tells them exactly what liturgy they should follow. Nothing is left for man to decide when it comes to these matters. God is the one who establishes all these things. God, as the Lord of the covenant, establishes the time of meeting throughout the holy days and festivals of the year. The people had to respond by sanctifying themselves in order to complete the process. Note, it's a two-part thing. God tells them when and how to do it. It's up to them to carry forward that command. Okay? What is there for the first conclusion? Time is holy. Time, with all its liturgical demarcations, belong to God. Hence, the importance of the liturgical year and its significance. We are more acquainted with the holiness of space. We enter a church. We know if the, if the tabernacle is present. We have a sense of a holy place. We go on pilgrimage to the site of a saint or to the Vatican. We have a notion of a holiness of a place. Less so when it comes to time. But time is holy. Special temporal events are holier than others, just as special locations are holier than others. 
So we do have still that, 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 we have that sense when we come closer to Holy Week. By its very definition, the word Holy Week. Now that's the temporal notion of holiness. All right. God, when God created the universe, He didn't just create space. He also created time. You understand? Time is a construct that God put forth in order to uh, support us. We are temporal beings. He's not. And in the words of consecration, Jesus tells us, told His apostles, do this in... What is that? Time. That's a temporal concept. Something happened before. We're making it present now. Finally, time is holy because of the parousia, the coming of the Lord. His coming will happen in time. Therefore, Jesus Christ isn't the Lord, isn't only the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, He's also the Lord of time. In the book of Joshua, there is a miracle that is recorded in the book of Joshua where, because of Joshua's prayer, God takes the sun and moves it backward about 14 hours or 16 hours, some number of hours. And we also say that the, the cross of Christ covers the world backward and forward. So all the justified that, may, that, that entered heaven, St. Joseph, Abraham, jo- Jacob, Joseph, I mean, uh, Jacob, David, uh, Joseph, and all the justified entered heaven through the cross of Christ. Right? So hence, time is holy. How is your time? Do you treat your time as something holy? Are your occupations done with a mind to God? Are you aware that when you're doing any kind of occupation, God is present? Or that you have to render account of the way you used His time during your day. Each and every one of us will have to render account for every second we spent. How we spent it, what did we do with it. Because it is His time. He sanctified it. How did we treat it? So, for instance, when we engage in gossip... Not only can we be slandering somebody, attacking someone's reputation, but we're wasting time. You know, when mom says, don't waste time, that carries a lot more meaning to it than we think. Because we, again, being who we are, mostly focused on the horizontal plane, we tend to think of the outcome. Don't waste time, get your stuff done, you know. No, no, no. There's more to it than that. That time wasted, you're going to have to render account of that waste of time before God. I don't want you to confuse waste of time and recreation. Recreation is not a waste of time. It is a necessary thing. We need it. But be mindful of what you're doing with your time. If you're watching a soap opera, You're wasting time. Yeah? 
you need to, again, I don't have a list of activities where you say, okay, these one you're wasting time and these. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Right? Like for me, for instance, um, I'm not much into organized sports. It's not my thing. But I might sit and watch a game if it allows me to build a bridge of friendship with someone. I have an ulterior motive behind it. Right? If I were to sit and watch it by myself, it would be a complete waste of time, even if it was the best possible game in the entire history of sports. Why? Because God didn't put in my heart to be into that sort of activity. For me, it's a waste of time. Somebody else, that same event may be uplifting, may fill this person with hope. May have been mean, had some meaning for that other person. So, again, I am not trying, there is no sort of prescribed list of, I mean, there are some activities which are evil, period, and there's nothing you can do about that, right? But in the realm of activities which are not evil, notice, therefore they have good in them, there isn't a list of prescribed things, do these and don't do those things. You are always, at all time, accountable of that time. The other important aspect of the whole book, of this whole chapter, liturgical unity. Liturgical unity. The Israelites are commanded to come together for these festivals and to celebrate together in a specified manner. Not, they're not given options on how to celebrate because all of this reflect the unity there is in heaven. Okay? So beyond the holiness of time, there is unity which is symbolic of the unity of heaven, being members of the same family. So for instance, in your own families, when you sit down to eat with your children, you have a code around that table. You may say prayer sitting, you may say prayer standing, it's your choice. You may say prayer before meal or after, or both. It is your choice. And then you have a specific ways of how you want your children to use cutleries and how you want them to serve themselves and how you want them to behave around the table. And you don't tell one kid to eat standing, the second one sitting, and the third one kneeling, and the th fourth one from a bowl on the floor. Right? You have a certain unity around your table. And when you have people visiting, you would expect your visitors to abide by your rules. It's your house. So it is with God. So it is with God. Hence, the time is important. The way we celebrate the liturgy is important. And the, clear, clear, the clearest sign of problems within the church is precisely around the disunity of the celebration of the Mass today. We do not celebrate in a unified fashion. Some people open their hands during the Our Father when it's not prescribed. Right? Others follow their rules. One example. We think that satisfying our own feelings trumps the discipline of unity that reflect heaven. Because... Underlying all of this is the notion that I go to Mass not to give God the glory, but to receive consolation. 
And the reason is because we live in a broken society where the family has been broken and many, 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 many people are either alone or emotionally neglected and they go there and mass has become, or the church has become a source of consolation for them, which is great, but it's not enough. Because take them away from that consolation and see how they react. A perfect example I'll give you is Medjugorje. It's a lightning rod. There are people who today nearly assert with papal infallibility that Medjugorje is true. There are people who today nearly assert with papal infallibility that Medjugorje is not true. The truth is, we're not the magisterium. God, as far as I can tell, did not promise any one of us here infallibility in deciding the truth about Medjugorje, as far as I, can, I know. Our job, therefore, is to wait. Neither condemning, nor encouraging. And abiding by what the church has asked for. The ordinary of the diocese, the bishop, and then sticking with that. But we want, oftentimes, to satisfy our own emotional need over and above what God asks us to do. And we have to be very, very careful with that. This is one example among many. I chose this one because it's very well known. Almost nearly everyone has heard of a Medjugorje. But there will be so many other examples I can give you following the same line. All right. We talked, therefore, about the importance of that unity. Now, two parts in the chapter. The first one is entering God's rest, the Sabbath. That is affirmed first. Six days you shall work, the seventh you shall rest. This is unique in the ancient history of civilizations. There is no other prescription for a weekly rest. You will not find that anywhere. But, before we go on, I want you to understand that this rest is not what we may be tempted to think it is. It is not a rest as in rest from real hard work. I'm going to sit down and veg. That is not the rest that God is speaking of. Why? Because in the first place, work was not intended to be that way. Okay? That's a very important difference to keep in mind. We, again, being focused on objectives, the car, the house, right? the iPad, the vacation, the other things that I want to have, do have a tendency to overwork ourselves. Particularly when we take that all on our, upon ourselves instead of going before the Lord and asking Him, what should I do now? Remember, Wasting time? Here's one counterintuitive idea I'd like you to think about. Working can be a waste of time. Working can be a waste of time. Particularly when it's taking you away from the duties that you must bear. And let me speak to the guys right here as a husband and as a father. As a husband and as a father. 
a couple of days ago, uh, we, uh, my wife and I met a, a, a woman and her daughter in a social setting. And I took one, I looked once at that daughter, and I knew right away, here's a daughter who's being neglected. Her father is not talking to her. Fathers, if you have daughters, if you have sons, both, and if when they reach the age of reason and above that, if you as a father are not taking them on dates, I don't mean expensive dates, time one-on-one, where you, you as a man with your daughters are showing your daughters how a man is supposed to look at them, you're wasting time and your daughters will suffer. Show me a woman who is modestly dressed and I'll show you a man who neglected her. Don't, don't burden your wives with the dress code. That is not their battle, this is yours. And let us, please, everyone, remember, you're not supposed to be your daughter's friends. You're the dad. You're not there to be their friends. You're there to upset them. You're there to tell them the truth, gently, firmly. But it's your duty. So if you're so taken by your work that your children are growing up and you are not spending time with them, as a father, not just... You're having fun. I'll, I'll relate to you this one story, which has stuck with me. Um, a certain lady that my wife knew related that when she was younger, she was going to a party of sorts, prom or otherwise. She was going down the stairs and about to head out of the door. She was 17 or 18. Her father looked at her and said, where are you going? So I'm going to a party. And he looked at her and said, not with that dress, you're not. He says, but dad, I can't, you know, beautiful diplomatic excuses that the feminine side of us, yes, the feminine creativity is able to create on the spot, right? They all became, right? They all became secondhand car salesmen on the spot. But I can't, and this and that, and he said, no, you're not going like this. You go and change. Why, dad, why? He looked at her and he said, because... If I see a girl like you dressed the way you are, I will want to screw her. Now let me tell you, that stopped her in her tracks. She turned around and went back upstairs and changed. Because there was a man, her father, who told her a truth about men that she did not hear before. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we have to use that kind of language. It's kind of extreme. But if we're not communicating that to our daughters, who's going to do that? A stranger? Again, working could be a waste of time. Be mindful of that. All right. So the Sabbath was not just you don't work, right? That's one part of it. The other part is you pay attention to me. Because we can think, okay, I'm not going to work. I'm going to go walk on the beach. Enjoy myself. 
But if you did that, you would not be fulfilling the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't just stop working. There's a reason why God is saying stop working. And He focuses on work. Because He knows how we take to work. We're busy. We have things to do. Places to be. People to see. We're busy. He knows that. So don't think of work narrowly as in my 8 to 5 job. No. It is cleaning your house. It is doing your laundry. It is you know, having a haircut. And all the rest of it falls under work. It is all the stuff you want to do that is focused on you. There's two parts of the Sabbath. Don't work and pay attention to me. So here's the question to you. How do you pay attention to the Lord? Okay, what are the two greatest commandments that we get from the Old Testament? You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor like yourself. There you go. That's the spirit of the Sabbath. Right there. Not just hang out with people for the sake of hanging out because you feel like hanging out with them. Not just that. You understand? It is for a godly purpose. It is for a godly purpose. For instance, you have family members who've fallen away from the faith. You invite them over for dinner. And during the whole dinner, you do not bring up the subject at all. You just spend time with them and you have a good time. Guess what? That was a very good sacrifice. You see you're keeping that connection. And you had to mortify yourself because you cannot do what you want to do, namely share the word. But you're witnessing. You're witnessing. And therefore, you are now like a light rain falling on hard rock. You never know what will sprout on that rock, but it will one day. That is loving God. Now remember, God could have commanded the Israelites to perform hard labor on that day. He could have said, sixth day you shall work, and on the seventh you perform hard labor. I mean, we take the Sabbath for granted, right? No, no, he he had multiple choices. He could have said, on the seventh day you're going to hop all day long. Right? Or any other thing. He could have picked any other thing. He could have said, On the seventh day, you're going to perform miracles. You're going to raise the dead. Do you understand that for him, the Sabbath was more important than miracles we could perform? Because he wants us to visit with him. Why? Because this is boot camp. This whole life here is boot camp. This is just a short moment in time for eternal beings who will live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we don't even comprehend what that means. You know, Google means one with a hundred zeros behind it, right? One with a hundred zeros behind it. Think about that number. Nobody comprehends that number. Anybody understand that number? Can you point me to something that has so many... Is there anything in this universe that has so many stuff that actually corresponds to one followed by a hundred zeros? We don't even understand that number. Well, guess what? That number? In eternity. 
we don't understand it. We cannot even comprehend it. So we are now in boot camp. It's a very short moment of our life. And we're deciding what we're going to do forever. Now, in Matthew 11:28, our Lord says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a symbol. It's a sacrament, a sacramental sign pointing to the reality. Reality is, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. Rest. That is the meaning of that day that Jesus fulfills. However, to enter into the rest, so what we said about the Sabbath right now is that it isn't just a cessation of activities. It is also a turning around to the Lord. But in turning around to the Lord, we can do that formally. We can go through our checklist. Okay, Sunday, let's go to Mass. Check. Let's have our family over. Right? Check. Now I've done what I had to do. I'm going to go rest. Let me go watch a movie or a game or do whatever I feel like doing. If that's my attitude, I'm not entered into the rest of the Lord. You see, I'm like the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. I'm there. I'm doing everything God is asking me to do. But there is no connection between me and him. I'm just going through the checklist. Don't ask me any more than that. I'm done. But Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. And in the, in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, there's a whole analysis of what that means. And the fundamental idea is that in order to enter into the rest of God, what do you need? You must what? You must believe. You must have faith. Now you might say, oh yeah, I do have faith. Yeah, I understand that. But that faith must be operational. It must be a faith that is rooted in time. That says, I've given up the, doing these things on Sunday. For instance, get home on Saturday and you had a mountain of laundry. And your Monday is already busy, and your week is crazy, so your Sunday at home, what do you want to do? The laundry. Right? That's how we would be tempted to live it. How would Mother Teresa live that same event? She would go to the chapel and spend one hour in adoration. And in that one hour, she would ask the Lord to find the time during the week to do the laundry. That is operational faith. You see? It's not like, okay, I have faith, but I have faith. I'm here and God is in Canada and I have faith. Right? And there are no phones. He's somewhere out there and I'm here. And I believe. I do nothing with it. I have a faith of a two-year-old. That's what I'm saying, basically. Yeah? A nun came to her in her order. They always started, and they're busy women, they're busy nuns. They start the day with one hour adoration. The nun came to her and said, Mother, I can't do an hour adoration today. I have so much to do. And Mother Teresa said, Is that so, my daughter? Well, then in that case, you're going to go spend 
two hours of adoration before the Lord because you need it and then ask Him to give you all the time you need to do the rest. See how counterintuitive it could be for us? Because we don't think this way. I'm too busy. I've got too much to do so therefore everything is on my shoulder and the devil is right next to you. Yep. And you have the laundry and don't forget you want to paint the house and oh by the way you forgot to pay the bills and these other things are happening and so you feel completely overwhelmed and everything is on your shoulders and God is no more. No longer in the picture. He's not your savior. He's not there to take care of you. Your guardian angel is not in the picture anymore. There's nobody. There's just you and the laundry. Yeah? Groceries. Sunday's tempting. Do groceries on Sunday. Yeah? So, again, same. I think you're getting these ideas, right? Your faith must be operational. Leviticus is all about that. God sets the rules and then tells them what to do and how to do it. It's like, Leviticus is like a small house that you build for your kids to get them to understand how to run the real house that you're going to give them when they're older. That's what Leviticus is about, in one sense. I don't want to... This is kind of a little unjust to the book. It's much more than that. But it has that idea, right? Now you're on your own. There is no Leviticus, right? But you are to act like God instructed the Jews to act. First, you go to these moments of prayer, bring to Him all your list, let Him deal with it. All right. Now, here's an important element. There is a a group of believers, right? The Seventh-day Adventists, you've heard of them. Who basically say that the Catholic Church is, uh, you know, they're one of the one of the ones who claim we're not Christian, and their their uh, reason is because, well, we don't celebrate the Sabbath. We should celebrate the Sabbath, not Sunday. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you have to celebrate Sunday. It says the Sabbath. How come we're celebrating Sunday? Well, yeah, we say the resurrection, but it's not. And how do you translate? You're right, the resurrection, but how do you translate that over from resurrection to Sunday? Sunday is the eighth day, actually. Saturday is the seventh day. Yeah, Sunday is the eighth day. But here's why. Here's why. What did Jesus say about himself? Who is Jesus Christ? Yeah, 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 he is. But in, in connection to the Sabbath, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He established the Sabbath. He abolished the Sabbath. You understand? When he told the Jews, I am at work and my father is still at work. On the Sabbath, he did all his miracles on the Sabbath. He was doing it to spite them. He's doing it to tell them that is not the real day of rest. Because creation is not yet complete. And then he established the real day of rest when he rose from the dead. This is why the Sabbath foreshadows the fulfillment of the promise and Sunday reminds us that that promise has been fulfilled. The Sabbath commemorates the union of Israel to God at Sinai. Sunday commemorates the union of the Catholic Church the Bride of Christ to her risen Lord on Mount Sion. So it is a replacement. It's a substitution. They're right. We're not celebrating on a Sabbath. Because now there is one who's greater than the Sabbath. 
and this is who we're celebrating. Okay? Since the Sabbath foreshadows Sunday, the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy obviously transfers over to Sunday, and therefore we must keep Sunday holy. That's why the church requires us to go to Mass to offer God the worship that is His due, and that is why, as we read it in this book, if you, in, in, in the entire book of Leviticus, if you work during the Sabbath, here there were physical death. Right In the book of Exodus, a young man was collecting wood during the, the, on the Sabbath, and Moses commanded that he be stoned. And that is obviously a foreshadowing of a mortal sin. Hence, when we do not keep Sunday holy without good reasons. Now, if on Sunday morning you receive a note that your mother-in-law is going to come to visit, you have nothing to offer her, well, you better get going. Right? That's, that's an act of charity. That's a work of mercy. Cleaning the house and getting it ready and having food on the table isn't done now for your own satisfaction. It is done as an act of mercy towards someone who's visiting. You're honoring the visitor. Therefore, you're honoring God. Hence, you get it done, obviously. But if you leave all your, on a regular basis, habitually, all your chores and all your cleaning and all your dishes and all your laundry and the groceries on a Sunday, you got some questions that you need to answer. All right. Now, the Israelites were commanded to observe every feast as a Sabbath even if the feast did not fall on the Sabbath day. And there are feasts that did not fall on the Sabbath day. But for these feasts, they were commanded to keep them as a Sabbath day. Hence, similar to what? What do we call those today? Holy Days of Obligation. just want to show you how Catholic this book is. Hmm? Holy Days of Obligation. Same idea. But then what is therefore implied here? What is implied is that the keeping of the Sabbath is not... An absolute in and of itself. It is pointing to something else. It is pointing to something else. What is that thing that it's pointing to? Okay. We always go back to Genesis. There's echo of Genesis throughout all of Scripture. In the beginning, when God created the garden, He placed Adam in the garden, alone. And what did God tell Adam. What was the command that God gave to Adam? Guard and till. Or till and guard. Remember those two. Till and guard. Right? Not till and guard until you're 65 and after that you can go to Hawaii and then retire. I'm just saying it. Right? He didn't tell him that. Okay. What is really interesting in this statement that God gave Adam? Till and guard. He didn't say six days you shall till and guard. And on the seventh, you rest. There was no Sabbath for Adam. He was continuously tilling and guarding. And we call that paradise. Some people have some kind of mistaken idea about what Eden was all about. You're tilling and guarding. You men, by the way. Not the women. The men. Let's be very clear here. You're tilling and guarding that garden... Every day, non-stop, and there are no vacation. How's that paradise? Okay, before the fall. And? What's different? Okay, it wasn't the pain of the labor of the toy. Uh, pardon? Yes. So, how many of you have seen this movie, um, Enchanted? Enchanted, right? 
Yeah, in China. You know how she sings and all the birds and everything else comes and sort of tidy? Well, think of Adam this way. Kind of give you a better idea than any other thought you might have him as a gloomy guy walking around all by himself. But that's, that, yeah, there was order in nature. Nature collaborated. So therefore, the tilling and the guarding is not hard labor. Right? What else happened in the garden every day? God. Right? God walked in the garden with them. Therefore, God tabernacled with them. The holy presence of God was among them every day. Yeah? That is why there was no need to institute a Sabbath because every day was a Sabbath. So what is Sunday for all of us? Sunday is a return to the garden. It is a return to Eden. It is more than that, right? It's stepping up to paradise in the cloud, which is the Holy Spirit. That's what Sunday is. But it requires an operational faith to be able to live it this way. Yeah? So, the Sabbath was lost when Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden. There was no longer a Sabbath. Hmm? And then... Between the leaving of the leaving the garden and Moses, a number of events happened that all prevented the return to the Sabbath or the institution of the Sabbath. Right? First, you have Cain and the Cainite civilization that corrupted everything, leading to the flood. After the flood, you have Ham, right, and the curse of Noah and his son Canaan, that led to Nimrod, who is the father of paganism and the Tower of Babel, and all those events kept pushing man further and further away from the rest of God. Hence you can see the entire scripture as an arc from, from the garden to the cross, where God reinstituted the day of rest on the rock. That is the purpose of that Sabbath. This is what He expects of us when we live Sunday. Therefore, I'll, 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 I'll finish with this idea. So next week we'll continue the study and we'll focus on the liturgical year. which is There's some very beautiful elements in there that I want you to really understand because they really help our faith and the way we live our life. But for tonight, the... The important thing also to remember, besides the fact that you need to think about how you're spending your time, whether you're wasting it or whether it is productive in God's eyes, beside the fact that you need to have a faith that is operative, meaning that when you're faced with a temptation to allow work to invade your Sunday, you must resist it and go and pray. There is a third element that is really important that ties the whole thing together. In order to really reap the graces that God wishes to give you, 
on a Sunday. And here I'm talking to folks who can't or are unable to go to daily Mass. Right? In order for you to really truly reap those benefits. So, St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us, or teaches us actually, that the, even though God's grace and His mercy is infinite, right? that mercy, in order to reach us, needs to go through a pipe. Because God acts through people. Right? Think about important moments of conversion for you in your life. You can probably always trace it to somebody. A saint, a friend, somebody who gave you a book to read. It's passed on from generation to generation through people. So, therefore, there are pipes, so to speak, for that grace to flow. Well, the flow of grace in the Mass is dependent on the holiness of the reigning pontiff, the holiness of the ordinary, the bishop of the diocese, the holiness of the priest. Those are three things that are not directly under your control. And the holiness of the congregation. That's where you and I come in. Now think about that for a second. How can, how can you then reap all the benefits you can reap from the Mass? How can you do that? Well, like anything else. Like anything else. If you were to step up to a dance floor and try to swing and you've never learned to swing, you might end up with yeah, a broken leg, for instance, right? We, we know that, right? It takes work. It takes training. It takes dedication. It takes focus. It takes perseverance. Therefore, if we don't think of our week, Saturday, sorry, Monday through Saturday, as a preparation for Sunday, yeah? And of Sunday, as a thanksgiving for the week past and the week to come. Now we're not entering into the rest of God as we ought. Back to this wasted time if we think of our entire week as a bowl, as a bowl that we're going to bring with us to church. And when we go to church, that bowl, our guardian angel, at the moment of consecration, will take that bowl to the altar. And that bowl will contain all the sacrifices that we will have done that week for that purpose. If we can think of it this way, then we would then hope that one day the Lord will tell us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of your master that has been prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. God bless you. We'll finish with a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions. Okay, very good question. Uh, The question is, uh, Jesus came on earth and gave us the law here on earth. What about other intelligent beings that may exist in the universe? As you know, the universe is extremely vast. And it is entirely possible that God may have created other intelligent beings outside of this planet. 
There's absolutely nothing in our faith that is contrary to this idea. And we shouldn't be too concerned by it. Primarily because, and I'm going to answer your question, but primarily because whether they exist or not, changes nothing to our salvation. Extraterrestrials are not part of the equation for us to get to heaven. Therefore, you can be completely free to ignore them, even if they existed. Now, back to your question. What about others? Well, as we said, God is not constrained by the sacraments. We are. He's not. So, therefore, He is always free at any moment to choose to save someone through other means. You're with me? Okay. However, there are some restrictions. And those are important ones. The most important one I'll give you has to do, that comes to us from the litany to Our Lady. In that litany, one of the titles that we give to Our Lady, and it's not a simple title, really it isn't, is Queen, not just Queen of Heaven, which is already, you know, but as far as this question goes, Queen of? Okay, Queen of the Universe. Now think about that for a minute. What does that mean? She's Queen of the Stars and the Suns and the Constellation and Black Holes? No. No, means that any and all creatures who would also be in heaven, aside from angels and us, have Mary for their queen. And there's a simple reason. God can have only one mother. That's based on the principle of the family he established here. One man, one woman. One mom. And she's it. So if there are some Martians out there, not necessarily on Mars, maybe they're expats, who knows. They can't, there's not a Martian mom. And there isn't a Martian version of Jesus. There's only one. That's the dignity to which he raised the human, raised the human race. It's beyond our understanding. And it kind of makes you ponder, why us? I don't know why us. Right? But here you go. If there are other races out there and if also they fell they were tempted and they they fell God would save them through other means it would not be what you have here alright yes Okay. in terms of the consecration of Russia my understanding I'm not an expert but my understanding is this Um, Sister Lucia said that the consecration did take place the third secret was revealed in its entirety after John Paul II understood it was fulfilled in his person. And I don't think there was anything else that was hidden from Fatima. Everything that was given to the children of Fatima has been revealed as far as my understanding goes. No, according to Sister Lucia, it was done. The consecration of Russia was... I understand that other people have other opinions, but that's my understanding. And I'm, I'm really not a specialist on this topic. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. So, yeah, there's two parts of the question. The question is, uh, in the Old Testament, it was obviously the, the role of the priests to instruct the people in the proper celebration of their liturgy and the proper way of sacrifice. They were the ones who would examine the animals that the people would bring, and if they did not meet the standards that God established, their role was to refuse that sacrifice, even though their livelihood depended on them. All right, so that's what they were supposed to do. In the New uh, Covenant, 
There are two things that have happened when, when Jesus establishes a new covenant. The first one is that we are all now priest, prophet, and king. That, that is, we share in the, um, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit when it comes to understanding the faith, imparting the faith, and offering sacrifice. We can offer a sacrifice. As I said earlier, you can say, okay, I'm going to do this for you. And you can bring that to the liturgy. Or you can say, I'm going to say three rosaries for you. Well, that's a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they could not do that. They had to go to the tent to offer that sacrifice. They couldn't do it anywhere else. So we can. And St. Peter reminds us that we no, no, no longer need teachers. The Holy Spirit will be your teacher. Therefore, the church is explicit, quite explicit, is that we also, lay folks, have a responsibility to understand right, and learn about our faith. Hence, part of it is to truly put some effort in understanding how the liturgy works, what we're supposed to do, how do we worship. That's one part of the equation. The other part, it is also true that um, the priest and the bishop are in a sense, first and foremost, guardian of the liturgy. And the responsibility is squarely on their shoulders to make sure that the liturgy is reverent, it's well celebrated, and the people are categorized as much as possible into the understanding of the faith. Now, we also need to keep this in mind. You and I know very well that if tomorrow, in any parishes you want, in most parishes, not any, most, the priests were to stand up on the pul pulpit and tell the congregation, con um, um, the use of a contraceptive is a mortal sin. It's against the teaching of the church. If you're using a contraceptive, you're going to go to hell. Go to confession. What do you think is going to happen? Right? So uh, it is a complex situation in which people have hardened their hearts and in many ways have departed from the true faith. Now, this is not something new. We've seen it before. In the Old Testament, we've seen it in the New. And the book of Revelation is all about that. How God constantly course correct. That's what the book of Revelation is about. How God is actually governing the world. He gives us warnings through the letters. Those would be the encyclicals, the teachings of the church, the catechism, the do's and the don'ts. To the world, outside the faith, he speaks to them through nature. Those were the seals. Lightning and thunder and this and that. So, you know, the weather being what it is and uh, all the concerns around global warming, well, here you go. Now, if we're not listening, right, he, he amps the ante, right? You get the trumpets. He shakes things up. Through what? The economy, mostly. One-third of the fishes were no longer. What, why? The sea is a source of economy for most people in the ancient times. So, therefore, he hits that. If they're still not listening, right? So notice what he's doing. It's, it's, it's logical pedagogy. It is, okay, I'm going to shape you. Shape. Actually, we do the same thing. We're, we parents are apocalyptic. Your kid is not listening. What do you do? First thing, if you're a good parent. You set him down. We're talking about an older kid, right? Set him down, you talk to him, right? And you might do it a number of times. Those are the letters. He's still not listening. What do you do? You take away privileges, right? Well, there you go. Those are the seals. 
He's still not listening. What do you do? You might send him out. You might send him to, I don't know, reform center or something or the other, right? You make it really hard on him. And if he still refuses to listen, what do you do? You kick him out. Well, there you go. That's the book of Revelation for you. That's how God constantly cleans house. Okay? So, that's what eventually happens. Somebody else had a question? Yes. That's a very good question about the month and the year. Were they following the same calendar? There's a whole debate around that. Um, So, some would say that the Jewish year was lunar. But the reasons to think otherwise, because of the essence, those who were who wrote essentially all the documents that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they actually stated that the year was based on a solar calendar. So therefore, um, depending what calendar you follow, you might see that in some cases they're using a lunar calendar, in other cases they're using a solar calendar. Now, I'll keep it at that. There's a whole ramification of this answer. Without getting into the details, that's essentially how you can think of it. Most other cultures around them were based off the moon. That's why it's a month. It's with a month before. And, and translated into a month. That's why. Yes. Yes, I mean, going to daily mass is the best. It's the best. Absolutely the best. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay? Many, many fathers interpreted that to mean daily mass. And encouraged everyone to go to daily mass. That's a given. Now, Nevertheless, the church has a law of life. Therefore, Sunday will lead us to heaven. But, if you cannot go to daily Mass, then make sure your whole week is a preparation for Sunday. Right? So have God in mind, offer sacrifices, make sure you're preparing for Sunday. That is really important. Otherwise, our week is sort of a pagan with some, you know, prayers here and there. There's blips. And then, mm, comes Sunday. Now we kind of switch, go to church, and return to our pagan ways. How much grace do you hope to receive from that kind of behavior? Yeah? Yes. So the question is, um, how late can we be before we could say we did not celebrate Mass? So for daily Mass, there is no restriction, because you're not obligated to go to daily Mass. But for Sunday, you must be there before the Eucharistic uh, part of the liturgy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very good question. What do we think of the Tridentine Mass, and why is there two sort of parallel tracks between the Tridentine Mass and Novus Ordo? And the Novus Ordo. Um, okay. First, I love the Tridentine Mass. I love it. Okay. Having said that, if you go to the Tridentine Mass, you would know that there was good reasons for reforms. Okay? It was obviously really good reasons to adjust the Tridentine Mass. For instance, we don't say the creed, only the priest says it. We don't say the Our Father, only the priest says it. Okay? Those were supposed to be the prayers of the entire community. So essentially, they really pushed it all the way to the priest and the congregation had no active participation and so there was good reasons why Vatican II wanted to essentially introduce some gentle 
gentle reforms to the Tridentine Mass. Okay? Nevertheless, even with its form, you, know, you need to remember one thing. The Tridentine Mass produced saints. Okay? And it is a beautiful contemplative liturgy. I love it. So, that's what I think of it. The second thing I would point out is that, yes, there are two tracks, and you need to keep in mind that if you were to tell most Catholics today to go back to the contemplative liturgy, they would not be able to do so. They would leave. They cannot, in an age where most of us are taken by interactivity, TVs, radio, music, noise, things to do, um, going back to something that requires you to be really in a sense, receptive, not passive, receptive, is, the, is hard. It requires some spiritual depth. So, I understand why they are reluctant to do it, because you would end up with a schism. People would just break. It's just too difficult. Even with the simple, small reforms they did to the English liturgy, not the Latin Novus Ordo, okay? because in most other countries, the Novus Ordo, was already celebrated the way we're celebrating like with your spirit. That was already in French and in Arabic and a bunch of other languages. We're just kind of adjusting English to it. Even that, you had 300 priests saying they had issues with it, let alone the, the, the lady. So we have a real deep problem right now stemming from the way we're living the culture, and it's rebellious. There's a spirit of rebellion. Therefore, going back would mean you're basically kicking people out. And the church is not in her make. It's not her, her business isn't in kicking people out. I mean, they eventually leave on their own. But we, there's never been the case that the church sort of decided that, okay, 42 million Americans Catholic, you can just leave. Thank you very much. Not going to happen. Uh, yes, I mean, definitely the... The extraordinary form of liturgy today that you have in the Latin rite is very reverent. It's beautiful. The prayers are so, I mean, that helps you elevate your soul to God. Um, everything about it is really centered on God and really helps you in a very profound way to live the faith. Now, um, and to Rich's point earlier, a, a, the Novus Ordo Mass is celebrated with, with the right chants and the right reverence can also be very uplifting and helps people also reach that level. The, the difficulty, as I said earlier, is that are people living their faith every day? Are they in conversation with God? Because I think there are two temptations we have to avoid. The first one is what I call relativism. So I'm not calling you the church called it relativism, right? Anything goes and I do whatever I want. The other one is formalism. Right? I go to the Tridentine or the extraordinary form of liturgy because I, uh, I like the form. Right? But I'm still not deeply in love with God. So you have it on both sides. Right? So, yes. But nevertheless, the liturgy itself is just so uplifting. It's beautiful. Thank you. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.